We ask You to come and work in Your people. Open our eyes. Teach us what You want to teach us through this passage. We give our time to You, O Lord. We give our offerings to You, O Lord. Father, help us to worship You in spirit and in truth. Help us to fully engage with You, the God of all gods, Creator of all the heavens, Lord of all lords, the I Am who is I Am. Do Your work, O Lord. May our time together be honoring and pleasing in Your sight. In Jesus' name, Amen. Many years ago, when um, when I met on a blind date this little hippie chick um, named Jennifer Reedus at the time, and uh, after I met her, I was on I was actually on a blind date with a roommate, um, and then saw her on the blind date and thought, Oh my goodness, this this girl's pretty cool, and I began to spend more time with her. The more time we spent together and the more questions I asked, the more I learned and the more she disclosed of who she was and what she was about, the more I liked her. And then the more she revealed about herself, the more I found that I want to spend the rest of my life with this woman. She, the more she revealed about herself, the more I engaged with her. And we got to know each other. We became man and wife. We entered into, you know, as before there were a lot of rivals for my affection in her life, she had was it four guys who proposed to you at some point or other. Um, and actually, the day, this is really funny. It's actually kind of sad. Um, the day we got married, one of, her, one of my rivals, no longer a rival, um, one of my rivals called her and says, Jennifer, I release you. I'm going like, seriously? You're releasing her? That's okay. Um, but she became mine, and I became hers. We entered into a deeper relationship, and all rivals were removed from our relationship. We entered into new territory. We became one. And in a sense, we're seeing that happen in Exodus. Because what we're seeing is God is, re- is beginning to reveal himself to his people. Now, how does God, how do we know God, or how do we get to know God? Well, God has revealed himself through his creation, right? Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of the God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So we can look at God's creation and get a shadows and, and, um, and images of who he is like, but we don't get a clear picture. Romans 1 tells us that he has revealed himself through the consciences of man. So something in us says there is something much greater and bigger outside of ourselves. But again, it's fog and mirrors. It's just an, it's a, it's an unclear image of who He is. But in Hebrews 1, it says this, And long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed as heir of all things, through whom He created the world. So, God is beginning to reveal Himself over time through creation, through our conscience, 
through the prophets, and that culminates, uh, the, the clearest picture we have of God is through his word as it, as it reveals his son, Jesus Christ. So God is unveiling himself. He's disclosing himself to his people so that they would know him and love him and follow him as a wife would follow her husband. And so as we talk, as we enter into this, um, the next few weeks of looking at the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, I want us to think in terms of the relationship that a man has with his wife. How we ought to engage with him and each other. In Exodus 20, he reveals how he wants us to relate to him. And he also wants us to, he wants to reveal how we are to relate to each other. But it's all relational. So as a review, as we go back, all of Exodus is about this revelation of God. In chapter 3 of Exodus, we see that Yahweh reveals himself to Moses. And he actually gives his, he actually reveals to Moses his name, which is Yahweh or Jehovah. It's I am that I am. And that's how we are to know him. And that's how Moses declared him to, his, to the Hebrews. And then he begins to reveal himself to the Egyptians. He begins to mock their gods and their strength and their power through the plagues, the blows. And that culminates in the final blow or the final plague, which is the death of the firstborn son, and reveals his mercy and his grace to his people by saying that, in order to protect yourselves from death, we want you, I want you to take a lamb, sacrifice a perfect lamb, and then cover your doorpost with its blood, and then I will pass over. And then that, that began what they follow up until now, which is the Passover, which is the Lord revealing himself through mercy and passing over the people. And then he later destroys the pursuing Egyptian army. And then he parts the sea and allows his people to go to Sinai unharmed. That's where we've come from. So three months later from the time he's freed his people to now. It's three months. And he's called them to Mount Sinai. He's called them to the mountain. And he is beginning to, he's going to disclose himself to them. And he's going to reveal to him the guidelines in which they are now to relate in this new relationship. But before we, before we do that, it's so easy for us because this is the way we're wired. This is the way all religions operate. Is the God, quote unquote, gives rules in which the people follow in order to have a relationship with that God. So it's a condition of relationship. And yet God flips the script on us. He's not like that. In fact, he says, I'm going to initiate a relationship with you. Now I'm going to give you rules and guidelines in which we are to relate from here on. Which is really unusual. That's very, very different. You see a little picture of this later on in Deuteronomy because it, it reveals his heart. Deuteronomy 7, 6 and 9, it says, For you are my people, holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Think about that. The God that we can't even comprehend. The God who spoke and the universe was flung into existence. Says to his people, I am choosing you to be my treasured 
possession out of all the people of the world. I'm choosing you. Out of all the peoples that are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. This because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery and from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments to a thousand generations. He's declaring, as a husband would to his bride, his love for her and is declaring his faithfulness. From here on, I will be faithful to you for a thousand generations. That's the God who is speaking here. So compared to what they were used to, compared to what the whole world does, love was not a condition. Or uh, the law was not a condition to his love. But because he loved them, because he had affection for them, they're given as a confirmation of that love. Think about that. That's what these Ten Commandments are all about. The Decalogue is all about. So let's read... Exodus 21 through uh, 7. And what I hope for us to get out of this, this passage, I want to see two things primarily. One is there's, one, there's only one God. He is the supreme authority and should take center stage of all our affections and actions. The second point is we should worship Him alone as He, as he prescribes alone. So on page 61 in your... Pew Bible, or Exodus 21-7, through it says this. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord, Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation to those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commands. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So something to note as we read the Ten Commandments over these next few weeks is, one, we need to understand that it's a revelation. Okay, these commands is a revelation. It gives us insight about God. It's also a confrontation because it gives us insight about us. When God says, do not steal or do not lie, he's saying about himself that I am a God of truth and honor. That's what it says about him. What it says about us is you have an inclination to lie. You have an inclination not to live by the truth. You have an inclination to, to stray from my standard. That's what he's saying to us. That's why he's given us a law. And then he's given us instructions in which how we are to relate to him and each other.
So as we think about it, think through those things. What is it saying about God? What is it saying about me? And what instructions has he given to me, both in how I relate to him and how I relate to others? And again, as we think through this, the two main points are this is the only one and true God. And he alone is worthy of any worship. And that we should worship him alone in a manner prescribed by him. First command, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, we always have to understand the context in which God is communicating to us. And the Hebrews lived in a world, there was no, there was no society on the face of the planet that was not polytheistic. Every, every people that surrounded is the Hebrews at that time had many gods. You had the national god that was usually there to protect the country in times of war and when, when there was nationwide famine or war or something, they would call on their national, their national god. There were also family gods that families would hold to. We see this in Genesis when, when uh, Jacob and Rachel are fleeing from Laban. What does she do? Why does Laban follow her? Because she'd taken the household gods with her. She was, she was a, a, an idolater. Rachel, the wife of the patriarch, worshipped other gods. Abraham's father worshipped other gods. He was, a, he was an idolater. And God is calling them away from that. He's calling them away from national gods. Small g. Family gods. Personal gods. And what they would, how they would use these gods is when it came to their crops, they would go to one god for, to make sure that we gave or fed or worshipped or offered sacrifices to that god in order to get blessings on my crops or, the, um, or with uh, the fertility of my cattle or if we need rain, let's talk to the god of rain or if it's the god of the sun who provides light. The moon. There were hundreds of gods. We see this in, in Acts. When Paul goes to uh, Mars Hill in Athens, and he's, they've asked him to come up and talk about this, this strange religion, talking about this one true God. And as he's walking up, he sees that there are statues all along this roadway to every god imaginable. And they even had one to the unknown God. In case we missed it, here's one to the unknown God. So every culture, every person on the planet worshipped many gods. And here God flips the script and says, No, I am the only God. I created heaven and earth. I created you. I created all the stars. There are no gods who control all these things. I control all these things. I am the supreme God. And he's not saying, I just want priority over these gods. That was also common. It was not only common to have many, but you could also have some, there was kind of a hierarchy. And so God's not saying, I want to be first among many. The Romans allowed that, right? When the emperors, when the Romans would control or take over other countries, including uh, Palestine, what's now Palestine, they allowed, as long as you added the Roman emperor to your God group, you could worship any other God you wanted to. It's okay. But you had to worship him too. And God's saying, no, we're not, we're not just saying I'm preeminent. He says, I'm the only one. I'm the exclusion to all those others. 
I'm not first among many. I want to be the only God you worship. Yahweh is to be the supreme authority of all of our actions and all of our affections. Think about that. He wants to be center stage. Period. It's a radical difference from all the other cultures that they had been a part of. He's saying, I want to be the source of everything. I want to be your protector. I want to be, I want to be your provider. I want to be your healer. I want to be your life. Does that sound reminiscent of when we see Jesus? Six, six, 1,600 years later, when He's saying in the book of John, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. I am everything. I am the center. I'm the supreme authority. I'm the only one who's deserving of your worship. There are to be no other rivals. Just like a man and a woman in marriage. So the question is, as we look through that command, are there rivals in your heart to God? Is your heart divided? That one eye is over here, one eye is over here. Are the things that we're longing for that we believe God will not provide? And so I go to my idol. Because that's what we're doing. An idol is anything we go to that we think will bring life to us other than God. What is that? Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit God, says, You can tell who your idol is by asking this question. I will feel happy and my life will have meaning if, fill in the blank. I will be happy and my life will have ultimate meaning if I have good kids that do the right thing. If my son gets a scholarship. If I have a wife or a husband that care for me. If I get that house that I really want. If I get that house, I'll really be happy. I'll really be, I'll, I will really be fulfilled if I get that property or that house. If I get that new position at my work. If I make this much money, what brings you identity? What satisfies your soul other than God? And that can be an indication. Is there an idol or a rival to God's affection in your soul? God knows that that's our tendency. God knows that that is our tendencies to run to other things and he's saying I am the only God have no other gods before you come to me alone that's the essence of the first commandment he wants to be center stage of all of our affections in our life so when the first command speaks of Yahweh's supreme authority the second commandment speaks of how we are to worship him in Exodus 24 it says, And you shall make for yourselves, and you shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is uh, in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. So nothing in creation you are to make an image of in order to worship. 
You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So, remember, we're learning more about Him. We're learning more about us. What is our, what is our tendency? We want to make idols. We want to have tangible objects to set our affections on. And God says, no, I want to call you away from that. And I want to let you know about me. Because I'm not only the supreme authority, but I'm also jealous. This is the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and, and keep my commandments. So again, in the ancient world, because we're seeing these commandments in the context of his people in the world around his people. Here's why this is important. Now, we, we look at this and go, well, gosh, I'd never, I'm not going to create a, you know, a statue of a lion to worship. So we're going to have implications of what that looks like for us. But in those days, people viewed idols as the extension of the God they were seeking. So, in, in a very real sense, they believed that the carved idol, the tangible thing that they would put in their house, was a representative or an image of the God that they were trying to contact. So, in other words... Their idol gave them direct access to God. So if they pray to this idol, that means they have a direct telephone line to the God that, they're represent, that, that this idol represents. Make sense? So in their minds, they wanted to take these idols, put them in their homes so that they could have those gods there with them at all times. It was tangible, touchable, real thing to them. And if they had them in their home, and if they could build that, then they had direct access to the God they were seeking. But there's other things in why they did that. It was also a means of controlling their gods. Because in the ancient world, and if you, if you, gosh, if you read any Roman mythology, any Greek mythology, you go, wow, that's a dysfunctional group. An incredibly dysfunctional group. They're always fighting, they're always grumbling, they're always manipulating and gods could do just about anything except feed themselves. And so the, the, the purpose of man was to offer offerings, sacrifices to the gods in order to feed them. And that obligated the gods to, do, to work on behalf of the person who was making the sacrifice. So it was a manipulation. It was a transaction for the person. So the person would have their carved image in the home. They would set the food or sacrifice in front of the idol. And that obligated the idol to do what that person wanted. Does that sound familiar? Do we do that sometimes with God? God, if I pray, if I have my devotions, if I go to church, if, I, if I'm a good person, then you owe me the American life. You owe me good kids. You owe me a good marriage. You owe me good health. So before we think, wow, that's really weird, we're just like them. We just do it differently. And so God is saying, you cannot manipulate me. You cannot control me. You cannot manage me. I am God. There is no other. And you will worship me in the way that I prescribe you to worship me. You will not control me. You will not minimize me. 
It's interesting, if we think this was not the case with Israel, what is happening while Moses is up on the mountain? The people have taught Aaron into doing what? Carving a golden calf so that they could worship it. They weren't worshiping another god. They were trying to make an image of Yahweh so that they could worship it. And God says, while God is saying, oh, by the way, don't let them ever make a carved image of anything that would represent me on the heavens above, the earth beneath, or the waters underneath. They worship me as I prescribe them to worship me. They will not control me. They will not minimize me. They will not try to manage me through idol worship. So God is saying, there's nothing that you can create or make, no matter how beautiful it is, anything we try to conjure up, whether with our hands or with our minds, can compare to the real thing. It would be like we taking one of these new babies and saying, what a cute, telling the mama, what a cute baby that is. And you go, hey, it's nothing compared to this photo. The photo really is the real deal. And that's kind of what we do to God. We go, wow, look at the photo. Look at the image we're making. And we tend to put our attention there rather on the true thing, the real thing. So what does that look like today? So we still use pictures and images today. In, in the Philippines, I went there in the 1990s, early 1990s. And it's really interesting. And it was, it was comparable to having a lucky Jesus foot, like a lucky rabbit's foot. We just called him Jesus. Okay? And the cabbies there would have this little statue of the baby Jesus hanging from the mirror. Every single one of them had it. Now, what were they doing? It was idol worship. If I hang the baby Jesus here, then Jesus is with me. And Jesus will protect me and prosper me. That happens today all over the place. And even in the Christian faith, we use some things, whether it's a rosary bead or whatever, that would say, I'm actually bringing Jesus here and I'm earning favor in order to get what I want. So we can, we can do it through images. We can do it in images in our mind. It doesn't have to be a tangible thing. I remember um, a friend of mine, as we were talking one day, and we were talking about some of the hard things of God's character that's just hard to understand and of Christ. And I remember sitting there and he said, I cannot believe that because my Jesus is not like that. And I'm thinking, perhaps your Jesus is not the real Jesus. Not from pride, but because the Scripture tells us who He's like. And sometimes we want to pick and choose what we like about God, and that's the God we worship. As opposed to looking at who God has communicated, who He is in every aspect, and saying, no, I will worship who you say you are, because you are supreme. It is not what I would like for you to be, or what I would hope for you to be. That is idol worship. 
Because we're making an image, even if it's in our head or in my heart, that's not the real thing. And that's what he's addressing here. And then like the ancients, as we said before, we can become transactional with our relationship with God. We can go to God and say, God, I will do A, B, and C if you will, do B, if you will bless me. I will do this and this and this and this. We'll make deals with God. And God says, I will have none of that. You cannot make a deal with me. It's not a transaction. You don't put a quarter in the machine and get your blessing. You will come to me as I say. You will worship me as I say. You will honor me for who I am. And that can sound harsh. That can sound harsh in our minds. And especially as we look at the warning. When he says in that passage, in verse 5, And you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, we look at jealousy and think in terms of ourselves. God is not insecure. He's complete. He's not insecure, but He's jealous because of His relationship with us. We are His bride. He has a right to be jealous. Or he has a right to have no rivals. And then He says this, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Wow. That seems harsh. So God, are what you're saying? Is it if I dishonor you, you're going to punish my children? To the second and third, fourth generation? Is that what you're saying? That's what the passage says. But I think what God is saying is there are consequences for leaving me. When you turn your attention to, from me and go to idols and worship other gods, there are consequences not only to you, but to successive generations. Do we not understand that? Have we not experienced that? There are many in this room who are suffering consequences because of the decisions of our fathers and our mothers, or our grandfathers and our grandmothers. And we're suffering because of that. God is warning His people in order to have life. My desire for you is life and freedom. The only way you are to have life and freedom is if I am center stage of your life. It's like two boys who were putting together a puzzle at their grandmother's house. And the grandmother had put the puzzle pieces down on the floor. And the boys were all trying to put it together. And after you know, 30, 40 minutes of just frustration, one little boy picks up, the, picks up the box and looks at the picture on the box. And it was a picture of the king and his court. And he goes, oh, the king's in the middle. And by, by helping him orientate himself and say the king's in the middle, all the other pieces began to fit together. It had reason in place. And that's what God is saying. Is if I am the, if I am the middle, if I am the center stage, if I am the center of your love and your affection and your actions, all these other things will come into place. Did not Jesus say that? Seek first my king, seek first his kingdom. And all these things that you search after, that you're looking for, that you think will give you satisfaction, I will give them. 
Isaiah 55 says, you know, why do you, why do you buy uh, bread or why do you spend money on that which is not bread? Why are you continuing to spend your resources on that and it's not going to satisfy your soul? Why do you labor on that which doesn't satisfy? Come, listen to me and eat what is good. God is calling us to freedom and life. And He knows that the only way that's going to happen is if He is in the center of our being. In the center of our actions and our affections. And we worship Him in a wrong way when we come and we do all the things that we think we're supposed to do. And yet our heart is far from Him. Because He says, I want, to worship you in sp- I want you to worship me in spirit and in truth. That is desire for God. He wants to give us life and He wants to bring us freedom. And he knows that when we search for other things, we will only see death and emptiness. And then lastly, the third commandment. And you shall, make, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, if you're like me, I grew up thinking, okay, here's what this thing is saying, is I can't say, just, gosh darn. Or I can't say, I can't use Jesus' name when I hit my finger. Or God's name if I'm mad at somebody. That's what I thought taking the Lord's name in vain is. That's part of using it. Part of that is demeaning the name or dismissing the name or minimizing the name of, of Yahweh. We ought to have a little bit better picture and image of what that means as the Israelites did. Now they got a lot of stuff wrong, but they so revered God's name that when they were writing the scripts, the scribes would... As they were writing the Old Testament law, and they would come to the word Yahweh, this name, the Lord, they would take a special, they would cleanse themselves, take a special pen and special ink, and then write Yahweh, but they would leave letters out because they thought it was so holy that they couldn't write the whole thing or speak the whole thing out. And then they would cleanse themselves, put the pen and the ink away, and then start again. And they did that every time. Because they revered the name of the Lord. And they, would, they refused to misuse it or to minimize it. But other ways we can minimize or misuse God's name. It's when we use, when we use His name to accomplish our selfish ends. We see this in Jesus' time, right? When Jesus goes into the temple. And the tax... Or, or the... Uh, the money changers, what they would do is the people would go in and they would have to make sacrifices. Sometimes they would come from a long distance and so they wouldn't bring their sacrifice with them. They would buy it at the temple. And if you were poor, and, and there were various types of, of coinage and they would have to exchange the coinage to, to have temple coins in order to buy the sacrifices in order, to ple- in, in order to please God and fulfill their requirements to God. And when Jesus comes in, he sees money changers robbing the people and making a profit, but using his name to do it. And it, was, and it made him furious. Or we see it, we see it in our culture. When we've had people who, in the name of Jesus Christ, do heinous things in his name. We're misusing his name. The Spanish, when they conquered, they conquered in the name of Jesus. And they enslaved people. And they pillaged villages in the name of Jesus. 
It's misusing His name for His purposes. So as we see what God is trying to teach us, what He's teaching us about Himself, that He is the only supreme authority. There is no other God. We are to worship Him only. But we are also to worship Him in a way that He prescribes. In spirit and in truth. And then our hearts will be full. And then we will be men. There's a German pastor who said this. He had been persecuted by the Nazis. He had been persecuted by the Soviets after the takeover. He lived in eastern Germany. And one of the things he said is when God is no longer, when God is not God, in other words, when God is not in the center, then man is not man. Man is not who he was created to be. So when we place God in the center, we are all of who God made us to be. And we give our lives away and we bring life to those around us. When God is not in the center, when Neil is in the center, it only brings the curse with it. And I am, not, I am not who God made me to be when Christ is not in the center. When God is not center stage. When God is not God, man is not man. But when God is God, we are who we're made to be. And we flourish. We flourish. So application. Commands 1 through 3 tell us how we relate to God. That's the foundation for all the other commandments. If we get that right, all the other commandments will simply fall into place. We will not steal because we're looking to our Father for our provision. We will not lie because we know that we're not trying to manipulate the truth in order to get what we want because the Father is the Father of truth. We, know we, won't take some, we won't commit adultery and take someone else's spouse because we know that God will provide all of our needs. He, he will meet our relational needs. We won't covet because we know that in God's providence He's given everything that um, we need for that time. And therefore we don't look to other things to satisfy our soul. So is God the central focus of your actions and your affections? If not, what is? That's an idol. And others may be going, man, I'm overwhelmed to think about this. I know I've failed. I know I have other gods in my life. And I know how empty that makes me. Be encouraged. Because there was one who fulfilled all the law. Both in his actions and his affections toward the Father. And just like the lamb back in Egypt that was slaughtered and the blood put over the doorpost to appease death. That lamb the one who fulfilled completely the law, fully pleased God the Father, laid himself down as a lamb and became the sacrifice for the blood to cover us so that we can be rescued. That's the good news. And then there's the promise in Jeremiah 31 when it says, you're receiving the law in print now, but one day will come when I will write the law on your hearts. And you'll no longer have someone else have to teach you the law because it will be in your hearts. That day is here. God has given us the Holy Spirit. 
to imprint His law in our heart so that we be conformed to the image of His Son and live lives that are pleasing to Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your people. Thank You for Your Spirit. We ask, O Lord, that You would help us Keep you at the center stage of our lives and at the center of our affections. And that, Lord, we would worship you in a way that's honoring to your name, that pleases you. And that, Father, we would honor your name in our life and our actions. And that we would be a people, a treasured people, because of your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. Pour your blessings out on your people. Show us your faithfulness to a thousand generations. In Jesus' name, amen.